the failure to produce this witness, the failure to produce these documents, um, we consider yet additional strong evidence of obstruction of the constitutional functions of Congress, a co-equal branch of government. I've never seen dirtiness like this in my life. I've never seen corruption. They've been trying to impeach my father since before he even took office, after he won the election. Well, I would think that if they were honest about it, they'd start a major investigation into the Biden. It's a very simple answer. Likewise, China should start an investigation into the Biden. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I went to a flower child retreat with vegan slop and ponchos and no Twitter over the weekend, so I'm feeling sanguine and chill about President George McGovern or Marianne Williamson and really just being here now in the age of Aquarius. And I'm not kidding, because there's good news today for heartbroken Americans. This really is not going to last forever. Trump will be gone, Barr will be gone, Pompeo will be gone, Giuliani will be gone, and Trump cast will be gone. Yes, we promise to stay till this is over, but right now I'm promising it will be over. And here are some good signs. Former Republican Senator Jeff Flake, Republican Senators Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, and Susan Collins, they've all condemned Trump's appeals to foreign powers to investigate political rivals. Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, Uncle Chuck, has said the figure who blew the whistle on Trump's impeachable call with Ukraine should be protected. And when pushed by a constituent in Iowa, Senator Jody Ernst agreed with her colleague Chuck Grassley and said the whistleblower whom Trump has savaged deserves protections. Tucker Carlson condemned Trump's call with Ukraine. Tucker Carlson. He said there's no way to spin it. And there is indeed no way to spin it. When House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy appeared on 60 Minutes, he was widely panned for his effort to reproduce exactly Trump's incomprehensible talking points about his great wisdom and his beautiful, perfect phone call with Ukraine. Colin Powell. Republican also says the Republican Party needs to get its shit together. He may have phrased that differently. 21 lawmakers, aides and advisors, Republicans told The Washington Post that the party is in convulsions about what to do as the president tanks. And this stuff you will not believe. As of today, the proportion of the American population who say Congress should move to impeachment and removal is up to 24 percent. A quarter of the nation wants the president removed from office. And those who support an impeachment inquiry are now 31 percent. So that's a 55 percent majority backing an impeachment inquiry at minimum. A big part of those people want removal. That's the highest that this uh, NBC poll has shown all year. So the majority of Americans now believe there's something gravely wrong with Donald Trump and 24 percent want him removed. 21% of Republicans also support the impeachment inquiry. So just please, as you listen to, you know, Jim Jordan yammer on trying to make Trump look right in this, or people talking deep state or Giuliani garbled mash, don't listen to them. Look at the numbers. The American people don't want this president anymore. So as Ned Flanders on The Simpsons might say, idly, idly, ho, have you heard the good news, Homer? 
All right. My guest today is the great Molly McHugh. She's an info warfare expert who has advised leaders in Estonia and throughout the Baltics. She's an extraordinary thinker on the role of Ukraine in all this. Trump's call to Zelensky isn't just a problem for America. It is a big problem for Ukraine. Molly, welcome back to Trumpcast. Thanks for having me. So we, the people of the United States, saw a partial transcript of that Trump-Zelensky call. We got the impeachment inquiries. We got some high dudgeon from Democrats and a few out-of-office Republicans. We got weird frothing at the mouth nonsense from Trump's factotums, those Thorazine-deprived hacks like Graham and Jim Jordan. Then we got texts between Ambassador to Ukraine Gordon Sondland and Special Envoy Kurt Volker that you and I uh, texted about late at night. And then we got lots of self-incriminating tweets from Trump and the impeachment's chugging along. But in all this discussion of the call and the texts and their implications for U.S. politics and the president's future, we have not spoken nearly enough about your area of expertise Ukraine, and also Vladimir Putin. So maybe you can finally, once and for all, give us context, citing your awesome Politico article about what that call and what the unholy Putin-Trump alliance means for Ukraine. Yeah, it's uh, it's a deep well of who to dig into this week. Um, but it's, you know, it's been a great week for Putin. It was his birthday yesterday. I think he's gotten some very nice gifts. Uh, usually he gets you know, puppies and golden-plated statues from various Central Asian dictators. But, you know, this year he's gotten a pretty great gift uh, in the form of a huge deliverable in Syria and um, a pretty great gift in the form of multiple deliverables deliverables from the president of the United States, Uh. including disgracing the Ukrainian president and involving him in scandal, uh, continuing to sort of stoke the internal political chaos of the United States and uh, just sort of in general advancing huge amounts of Kremlin narrative on how feckless we are and how corrupt Ukraine is, um, really leaving the whole battlefield open for Putin to just walk right through. So who put that word corruption in Trump's head? Because that's the word that he settled on. He's now acting like he's a great foe of corruption. And why is corruption aligned for him almost uniquely with Ukraine? Is that Kremlin narrative? This is one of the most interesting things that I think we've heard from him. And you can always tell when some idea has been placed in his head and he just sort of repeats it over and over without changing the, the, the wording at all. I mean, this is one of them. And the number of times that he has said in the last 10 days or so, Ukraine is so corrupt, it is the most corrupt, it is so corrupt, there's corruption everywhere, um, which obviously there is a lot of corruption in Ukraine, It is part of why there have been multiple revolutions in Ukraine. Um, The fighting of corruption is actually a very important thing that needs to be done there. But the president trying to reduce this, like like there is nothing good in Ukraine, it's just a bunch of corrupt thugs, is 100% a piece of the Kremlin's narrative, Uh, which is like, there's nothing you can do to make Ukraine better. There's no one to work with. There's no partners you can engage. It's just a bunch of corrupt thugs. And Nazis and whoever else in in terms of how they talk about Ukraine. And this thing that I I don't think I was aware of where crackdown on corruption, which is something that Putin did when he put his business enemy Khodorovsky in a cage. um, And it's what MBS did when he locked up a bunch of his rivals in the uh, in the hotel was that 
that the Hilton or am I mixing it up? A Ritz, maybe? Um, it was the it was the Ritz Carlton, yeah. It was the Ritz, right? So he right he, he, he like he gave them a high style MBS lockdown, and now we see sort of Trump talking crackdown on corruption. Once you represent your rivals as corrupt, it becomes license. It sounds like to do almost anything, and that's what Putin also has done with Ukraine. Well, it's especially in the post-Soviet region and certainly not limited to there. It's a common theme if you look at any parts of politics in Africa and a lot of Asia. I mean, look, there's mm-hmm. a lot of corruption everywhere. And a, a classic strategy to go after political opponents in corrupt places is to accuse them of corruption when you control the sort of agencies that get to pursue corruption, mm. because then you can kind of control where the investigations go and who is targeted and who is not so, I mean, it's a classic strategy of, of smearing people when you know, in fact, you will find corruption if you look because there's so much corruption in mm. these places. Um, but Putin in particular has used it as a political weapon. And in many of the cases, uh, including uh, some uh, Hodorkovsky and, and some of the cases that sort of came out of that, um, the way that he has pursued Bill Browder and others, it's always about corruption. It's always about sort of tax evasion, accusations. Mm. Um, and it's all just sort of pixie dust and make-believe in the context of what the Kremlin is stealing and how it launders its own money. Um, and uh, But but this, this sort of package of tools uh, uh, using corruption to target opponents is so important because the narrative is so powerful in Washington. And I think we've gotten to the point, and in Western capitals, you know, I think we've gotten to the point in D.C. where if Putin accuses someone of corruption, everybody's sort of like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Hmm. Um, it's probably politically motivated. But, you know, if you're Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine, uh, an Eastern European country, that's what you do when you want to win friends in D.C. You come and you say, no, no, it's totally fine that I imprisoned my political opponent. You don't understand how corrupt they are. They're Mm. responsible for all this corruption. Mm -hmm. And those wars are fought constantly with lobbyists and and other things in Washington and with ambassadors. Um, And it's really hard to figure out when these environments are so opaque, what is real and what is not, and whose side you want to pick and whose side you don't want to be on. Mm. Um, and they know it's confusing and messy and awful, so it's just sort of the tool that they use. And in the Ukraine case in particular, I mean, if if you ever want to look at a place that's sort of like the ultimate nonlinear environment, mm-hmm. it's Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Everybody, that you know, it's, it's like huge factions of different actors, agendas, Alignments to the Kremlin, almost everything has weird Russian money tied to it, over it, under it, somewhere. Um, and if you don't understand who the person is that's talking to you, then you don't understand the information that they're giving to you and what their own personal motivation for that information is. And it's really easy for Westerners to get caught up in other people's mess. Because you understand and speak that particularly nonlinear language or, or dialect or something, that's why your reading of this phone call, I, I think, was especially potent, because you hear corruption. I don't think Trump's ever said the word corruption. And you don't get excited about Oh, Trump is, I don't know, Trump has finally decided that bribes and blackmail are not, you know, um, shouldn't be tolerated. You hear Kremlin playbook. And you also can hear sort of the the clash of arms um, behind this, that there's still a war, what's fair to call a war in Ukraine that started when Crimea was annexed in 2014. You know, we don't think about this Donbass conflict, but that's also at stake in this phone call. So tell us about that. You know, since since especially since sort of 2007, 2008, when we saw 
knew, you know, Putin had become president in 2000. He spent, uh, you know, a number of years sort of reconsolidating power internally, then starts looking outward. 2007 is the cyber attack on Estonia, which is still sort of something outside the normal lexicon of how we discuss these things in America. But 2008 was the Russian invasion of Georgia, which was sort of this huge, weird thing that no one expected except, you know, anybody actually paying attention. <laughs> and and then after it happened, it was right around the time of Obama's election. Everybody just wanted it to go away mm -hmm. and go back to normal. And there was the reset. And it was like, it never happened. And Putin paid no price. And then you have this period where there's the revamp of everything the Kremlin learned from that, what they sort of the new tools, the new military footprint, all the new propaganda uh, mechanisms they were developing. And then you have 2014, just after the Sochi Olympics, which were sort of Putin's little crown jewel, mm -hmm. um, where you have the rapid annexation of Crimea, the sort of invasion with the Green Men, the immediate annexation of the territory, and then at parallel sort of the launch of the invasion of eastern Ukraine, which sort of moved the needle completely away from the idea that Crimea was ever going back. Because there was this other mm. war you had to worry about. Mm. And I think we really, if you haven't, you know, seen it, talked to the people who fight it, understood what it was like for Ukraine. You know, Yanukovych really destroyed Ukraine, the, the sort of nominally pro-Western, according to Paul Manafort, but really Kremlin-aligned president mm -hmm. of Ukraine. Um, one of the things that he did that the Kremlin was very happy about was really gut the armed forces of Ukraine. So mm -hmm. when he fled after the Maidan, when the government collapsed, you know, when there's this war going on, there was not an army to fight the Russian invasion. And if you had been there in 2014, early 2015, where the, the war was really crowdsourced, I mean, you have volunteer militias and citizens groups sort of going to fight this war in the East because there's not an army to do it. Um, then, you know, raising money online for bullets and body armor and toilet paper and food and sort of running it out in truck convoys from Kiev. If you saw this early part of the fighting, you understood what this what this country was up against, and now five years later, with you know a, a tremendous amount of commitment and innovation on the Ukrainian side, with very limited but extremely important support from the United States and other NATO partners to um, help them with their training, to give them better skills to fight, to help them build capacity. Um, they have fought a Russian army. I mean, yeah, they say it's proxies and whatever, but this is the Russian land forces fighting a country and not lost. And that is so significant. And it's why all of our guys are there watching what's going on. Mm -hmm. And this is, in fact, in the same way the stuff that Trump is abandoning in Syria is what we should be doing. This is what we should be doing. We don't have an army in Ukraine. We are not sending American forces to fight a war. We aren't sending American hardware to fight a war. Um, we are training local forces to do the work that they need to do um, to be able to defend themselves against a hostile invading power. Um, and it is such an amazing sweeping success story in terms of modern military cooperation and partnership um, and the fact that Trump doesn't get that. I saw that in your piece and I thought that was interesting. Give me some examples of how this training has been successful and in particular how the javelins that President Zelensky mentioned in the call with Trump figure into this because they seem very um, DIY to me in pictures. There's a lot of DIY happening in, in this conflict, and I think it's why the Ukrainians deserve so much credit, because they've had to be tremendously innovative. And, you know, there's been a lot of, especially during the Obama years, it, this did finally change under the Trump administration, primarily because so many people that had nothing to do with Trump were pushing this forward and had also pushed President Obama for it. There was a change in what we considered 
um, allowed aid to Ukraine um, under the Obama administration. The there was this term defensive support, like we can only provide them defensive weapons. But to give you an idea, so, you know, the idea being if you empower the Ukrainians too much to attack Russia, it will piss them off and make it worse. Mm -hmm. And to make you understand how stupid the logic was behind this, and there's just no other adjective I'm going to attach to it, Mm -hmm. you know, that included defensive aid did not include things like body armor or night vision goggles or most radar systems, because giving the Ukrainians enough of an ability to defend themselves was somehow going to provoke Russia and made it worse. So this really did need to change, and that's why guys like Mattis and others, um, the military commanders who have been engaged, really pushed for this when there was an opening and when Trump wasn't paying attention. And this went almost entirely sort of below his radar that most of these changes have occurred. Um, but it's really important. The javelins are totally symbolic. They're not even the ones that Ukraine has already purchased, and mm-hmm. they did purchase them from us. We did not give them to them. Mm. Are sitting in a warehouse near Kiev because, again, we only sold them to them if they promised not to shoot the Russians with them. Um, they're there as a as an eventual deterrent. You know, don't push too far, don't push further, or we have these weapons if we need them. Um, but hmm. the symbolic value of that is so critical. This idea that they do have defensive capabilities that they can d- rapidly deploy as needed if there is a further Russian advance. Um, deterrence matters, and and this in particular, sort of a hard uh, weapon deterrence is uh, it's an, an anti tank weapon essentially. It's um, anti tank really weapon operated by like by a guy on foot running basically right yes. they're these 50 pound i don't know what they are they look like if you didn't know it's a really fancy rpg essentially, it's a really fancy but... rpg exactly <laughs> it looks kind of like something a kid would carry that would like shoot a basketball out of it or something i don't know oh, oh you know what it looks like one of those things that you send a cap into the stands at a game exactly like know? a t-shirt like t-shirt. a t-shirt cannon yeah yes it's they're really expensive i mean look javelins work they absolutely blow up tanks they absolutely stop the advance of heavy armor um but the rounds the individual rounds of ammunition are incredibly expensive they are not a weapon you mm-hmm. decide to use uh if you have other alternatives um but they're really really effective which is why people who are fighting say russians who still use tanks want them Um, And I think that, so that piece is really critical in terms of the symbolic side, but it's really like the other stuff, like giving the Ukrainians the ability to access the market for purchasing stuff they need. And they do have a huge armed industry of their own, a big defense uh, industry. They produce a lot of things on their own, and we're just filling gaps. It's very much the same on the other side, where the Ukrainians have overcome recruitment gaps, put together new units, put together new special operators, done all the stuff they need to do to build back a capable defensive army for their mm-hmm. own territory. Um, and we're there, again, just sort of helping them assess and fill the gaps and help them advance their training rapidly. So there's a you know, sort of Western and U.S. training facility um, that helps uh, train up the new units to mm-hmm. a certain level of, of capability. Those are then deployed to the front. And basically the Ukrainians rotate them through the heaviest areas of fighting as soon as possible with this idea that every one of your soldiers needs to be at the same level of combat readiness, this is an incredibly hard decision for commanders to make, knowing that there will be a higher casualty rate because you're putting green soldiers in front of um, heavy fighting and they're not experienced with it. But this is how you build an army in the middle of a war. And I think when you sit in Ukraine and you hear these stories and you hear the stories of the guys who've had to make these decisions and understand how the Russians target the most important people um, to sort of take them off the board and then hear the stories uh, like the one I relayed in, in the piece in Politico about 
these soldiers who are just killed at their posts in the middle of the night by Russian snipers because the Russians have moved their sniper school from wherever it was to the front in Ukraine, and they train by killing Ukrainians. That's how they get their badges. That's how they become certified snipers. And um, just the horrificness of this is so hard to describe until you hear the stories from the people who live in it. Um, and it's, uh, it's, I think we from so far away just want to think of this as a, as a, you know, sort of frozen conflict, but it's not, it's like a hot trench war. It looks half like world war one and half like a modern hybrid conflict. Um, and, uh, it's really a mess and Ukrainians are fighting it and we're giving them the minimal amount of support we need to, to enable them. But that kind of support is what we should be pushing toward as a future model with our partners, not abandoning it and saying it's hard and we have no interest there. This is immensely interesting. There are two ways of looking at Putin's rapacity. One of them seems to be, you know, that he wants to become or or stay the richest man in the world. Um, I think Bill Browder says he is richer than Jeff Bezos and has hundreds of billions of dollars. And then also he has these empire wishes. I mean, he seems to want to uh, rebuild the Soviet Union. Um, and, you know, obviously he said that the the defeat or the demise of the Soviet Union was the worst thing that happened in the 20th century. He, he's made no... Um, as much as he's a he's a kind of thug capitalist, he I mean I don't think he cares about the ideology, but he likes the empire um, and even has some superstitions um, around what it is for him to get Crimea, then get Ukraine back and go from there. Um, you explain that, and now I'm I'm forgetting exactly the details, but doesn't he seem to think he's he's chosen or he's some reincarnation? Sometimes it's hard to know with Putin what started as PR and then he started believing his own press release. Um, <laughs> okay. But, it, but it, for me, I just, I don't know what the origin point of any of this always was. And I don't, I don't like to prognosticate about such things, okay. but I think that uh, at this point, it's pretty clear his justification for what he has done since becoming president originally in 2000, um, the vision that he believes Russia needs to pursue in the modern world um, the reason there can't be more freedom in Russia, the reason that the security state has to dominate everything, the reason that corruption is critical so they can, you know, finance these flows of illicit cash into the West to buy all of us and mm -hmm. make us not care. You know, the reason these things exist, and there's been this logic that they've constructed for it from the sort of KGB cronies that have emerged in Putin world. Um, and it's this kind of, you know, for them, the original hard thing was like, how do you get rid of this whole Soviet legacy that really we just don't want to talk about? Cause it was like this weird thing. And like, it's hard to talk. You know, it's like, there's nothing great there. Like, mm -hmm. let's just leave it alone. So how do you keep like world war two, the great patriotic war was like this thing that made us what we are as a modern country, but then get way back into the history that has nothing to do with Soviets. And for them, it really became this, uh, you know, the conversion of uh, the first Russian ruler who was Orthodox Christian, as opposed to, you know, whatever, pagan something, um, which was in like the year 970. Uh, and that happened, the, the conversion of Prince Vladimir um, in Crimea, the baptism was in Crimea. And so that sort of became the beginning of this arc of history hmm. that Putin views as the thing he is the current product of and, and the one who will take it to its next phase. 
Um, and all of this was very uh, sort of eerily articulated in his speech in March of uh, 2014 about the annexation of Crimea, hmm. really laying this out in clear historical terms. We are the product of this thousand-year arc of history in which democracy is a blip, in which the Soviet Union was a blip. None of that matters. Ah. What matters is is our great, you know, the great justification for Russian power is X. And um, I think he really does believe that. And I think he believes uh, if he advances this vision, it sort of gives the justification for everything they must do. Um, and the we must do this part, regardless of the ideology behind it, is very much the thing that has always driven Putin. I mean, this is sort of like the talk in the Middle East or in the Arab world of reuniting the Ummah. And also when I, you and I at different places in the world started sort of studying disinformation and one of the early campaigns on YouTube, and I mean like at the launch of YouTube, were these videos that argued that one place was another place or belonged to another place. So the videos that I looked at were ones called Macedonia is Greece. Mm-hmm. And you looked at the ones and have studied this meme that Crimea is Russia. Mm-hmm. And that is the way that uh, you concede certain empire thinking, certain kind of almost like it's almost like missionary work, like softening the brains so that, you know, when the white man comes bearing Jesus and, you know, and uh, and machetes or whatever, that you're receptive to them. And Putin did that right with Crimea and Russia. He argued that it was Russia. And then, as you say in the piece, suddenly it was Russia. Again, the same way that, that people who were watching in 2008 could tell you, like, Russia's going to do something to Georgia. Yeah. And everybody's like, no, 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 it's fine. After Georgia. So in 2009, one of my former clients, who was then prime minister of Moldova, became prime minister. And his first sort of, uh, you know, CIS thing, the Soviet, former Soviet states go have a powwow, was in Crimea. And so he goes and it's his first time. So Putin's like, oh, ride with me in my car to, you know, the special dinner venue or whatever so we can have a chat. And Putin's just gazing out the window as they roll past the sea. And he says, have you ever been in Crimea before? And and Vlad, my client, was like, well, yeah, you know, I did my Soviet military service here, so I actually know it really well. And um, Putin just looks at him and goes, Crimea is Russia. It will be Russia again. And like mm. from 2009 onward, he said this to Saakashvili. He said it to Falat. He said it to countless people mm. that like he kept making this case and everybody just thought it was like the silly oh, whatever, Putin. But no, right. <laughs> he was he was really building the case for this and told everybody why it was important and said it over and over. And uh, and basically no one listened. So do you think that Putin, I mean, so many times on Trumpcast and everywhere else, we have seen um, the discussion of is Trump crazy or crazy like a fox? And yeah. uh, on the show, we've had the same conversation about Putin with Gary Kasparov, with a number of experts on the region. And in general, Russian speakers like to think that or like to say, and I don't know if there's a propaganda or if it's just that to oppose Putin, you don't want to give him too much power, but we'll say, oh, he's just ex-KGB and he's actually washed up and the people are starving and the country has no resources and this is just chess beating. But what you describe, the way that he essentially gets puppets uh, like Yanukovych or now Donald Trump in America to disarm themselves. I mean, you know, he seems to be able to sow, not only sow discord, but 
have his enemies unilaterally disarm, or at least in Trump's case, reroute Pentagon resources to a non-problem at the southern border and then, you know, withhold these javelins or delay them or hold them back so that we're, we're no longer helping NATO. And obviously, Trump has now suggested or has he already, does he do this by fiat, pull pull out of this NATO arrangement of monitoring Russians in European airspace. I mean, those seem pretty wizardly to me. You know, I, I don't I don't want to say no, I think, he's just no, you're up totally KGB. right. And yeah, this is the constant debate in the community of, you know, Russia watchers, Western journalists hanging out in Moscow, people reporting from abroad. And like, I don't really care is the bottom line. And I think the word that you hit on is the most important one, which is disarmament. And this yeah. is the the core aspect of all of the wizardry that the KGB, now the FSB, GRU, whichever agency you're looking at, really focuses on. If you read their PSYOP manuals and their information warfare manuals and the way that they operate, the key goal of everything they do is to never have to fight you. And yes, we've sort of you know cartoonized this phrase since 2016 that the Russians want chaos in America, but we don't really focus on what that means, how they achieved it, and what it what they're getting out of it now. Mm-hmm. And that is that we have taken ourselves out of the fight that we need to be focused on because of all of the magical wizardry, which may be really low tech bullshit. Excuse mm-hmm. my language, but um, it has absolutely worked. And it's the the soft narrative that the Kremlin promotes on itself, the be soft on Russia narrative, is this idea that, you know, the Kremlin can't possibly be behind any of these attacks, or it's all accidental or something, because they can't even pick up the garbage in Moscow. So Mm. how can they possibly be a real power? Mm. Um, And I think this is sort of amplified outward from, uh, from a lot of what we see in Russia, from journalists that are based in Moscow, because they live inside the disinformation bubble that is the Russian world. Mm all the time. Like, they're, that's what they live in. And um, I think that's the perception from inside Russia that they have to sort of promote is this, yeah, stuff is kind of broken and doesn't really work right. But, you know, hey, look, there's other things going on. We're, we're winning. The, we're cheating to win at the Olympics and we're, uh, we're getting Absolutely. Crimea. And these are these kind of ego wins. It's the core disarmament narrative. Don't believe the Kremlin is a threat. And in the ah. Donald Trump world of the disarmament narrative, is, well, yeah, maybe Russia did something, but it didn't do anything. And you keep hearing this, right? We have yet today yet another Senate Intelligence Committee report that's come out documenting the mountains of evidence about the Russian attacks in 2016, um, or the sort of the Russian targeting of the United States with with information warfare in 2016 that Mm -hmm. is still ongoing. Um, And yet you still have, like, anytime this is brought up, media personalities and others saying, well, do we, did it really do anything? Do we really know Trump now trying to erase the whole thing with the conspiracy? Mm-hmm. It is disarmament narrative. And this is the key thing to understand is like, why fight a war and win it if you just don't have to fight it? Yeah. I mean, it, the, so many times we don't want to exaggerate threats, but we also don't want to minimize them. It's just very hard to see something as, as right sized or not. Tell me how strategy like, getting Trump on board with the idea of weakening Ukraine. And Zelensky, maybe as a sidebar, you can tell me that Zelensky has had some success. We sort of tentatively think that as as unlikely he is to be a world leader, he's had some early success in the job. But how does Putin get Trump engaged in this idea of 
helping to weaken Ukraine and, of course, weaken NATO and, you know, set him up for greater success in uh, in his in his mission of expanding Russian power. How does he do this? I mean, he knows that helping him win elections is the way to Trump's heart, that crushing Trump's rivals is the way to Trump's heart. But does Putin stay all over what's going on with Hunter Biden in Ukraine so he can help leverage that to get Trump involved? I mean, it seems like a very nice confluence of events here. Yeah, and I think, you know, from the sort of Ukrainian landscape, I do think it is important to acknowledge that the fact that the then vice president's son was uh, joining the board of this kind of sketchy energy company Mm -hmm. at a not great time was very much commented on and viewed as not great in the Ukrainian landscape. Like, Mm -hmm. you're going to sit here and lecture us about corruption and patronage, and like your son is clearly just profiteering off of a company that wants to say the vice president's son is on our board, so you can't touch us. You know, mm. it was a really great defensive measure for the com- the company to take. Hmm. And, you know, Hunter Biden, obviously the black sheep of this equation uh, for the family and like was doing his own thing. And it's not something you can blame his father for, but it didn't look great. And I don't think that that's something that we can work around because the Ukrainians aren't going to explain this away for us. Yeah. You do a very nice job explaining that, um, you know, first of all, referring people to Adam profile of Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is, you know, one of the uh, many things that we like to talk about is succession. The HBO show and Hunter Biden is clearly the Kendall figure with his drug problems and some of his unsavory contacts. But those are things that Hunter Biden has talked about. And we can't get lost in the weeds of uh, you know, a, another, another American politician's son or daughter adventuring and profiteering abroad. And that we're supposed to believe it's a scandal while this administration has not divested itself from any of its private business interests. Um, the whole story that's coming out, there was a good AP piece sort of discussing how connected to the Ukraine scandals. Uh, Rick Perry is is you know, also pressuring one of the big, most corrupt Ukrainian gas companies that is sort of infamous for its multi-leveled corruption over time to change its board and put a bunch of Rick Perry cronies on it so that it's more like America aligned. I mean, the idea that this administration is is not disingenuous when going after Hunter Biden as opposed to themselves is just like, yeah, okay, whatever. I don't want to hear about it. And this is really not the point. So, I mean, it is a bad point. And there is that point of this is not a great thing in the history of, of things. But um, it's so it's also not the most important thing that Trump asked Zelensky for. What Trump asked Zelensky okay. to do, yeah. when the, the sort of mention of the, you know, the secret servers and CrowdStrike and whatever else. Yeah. This is this crazy alt-universe conspiracy theory that sort of came from the furthest part of the internet, was then amplified by all the Russian disinformation architecture, and then found its way to Rudy Giuliani via his creepy Ukrainian friends or mm-hmm. whatever. But um, the, if, if Zelensky were to participate in this conspiracy that, that Trump has asked him to find evidence of in Ukraine, what it says is Russia didn't attack the United States, Ukraine did. Mm. And just that he makes this request is unbelievable. 
But it is this idea still that we are to disbelieve the Mueller report, we are to disbelieve our intelligence community, we are to disbelieve all of our allies that have provided information on this, and believe only what the king has said, which is that it never happened, it wasn't a thing, and um, it was actually some totally insane conspiracy that is like this multi-part, 75-dimensional chess explanation of how things must have happened. I mean, come on, it's just nonsensical. Yeah. But I think that is the much more important aspect of what is happening. Part of the playbook also is just naming the like, just accusing, accusing the other person of what you just did, of course. So hack the American democracy and then say, you know, Ukraine did it. And also the fact that this conversation that between Trump and Zelensky, and I know there's more to this, this uh, impeachable offense than just that, but the the fact of this conversation between them, the fact that it is, you know, ostensibly concerns corruption when it in fact is evidence of corruption is is a is a corrupt exchange in itself is absolutely. Is, I mean, just really um, kind of comically offensive to, uh, you know, well, who do you take us for? Just complete idiots. It's like yes. if bribery and blackmail and quid pro quo and threats are all the constituents of corruption, that's what we have here. And you're enacting it at the same time. OK, so Biden and Trump. So to blame Ukraine, if Fox News and Trump and Giuliani working together can actually uh, you know, plant the seed that maybe this was Ukraine and get some weird Republicans to go along with it. Um, I mean, as a long shot, Putin might get sanctions lifted, right? Because then he does have sanctions on him for, you know, having used the army to hack the DNC's computers. All those things go to making, you know, he's still an enemy, a hostile foreign power. Um, so he doesn't enjoy all the protections and non-sanctions that the, that Europe does, but he wants to. And so yes. if this twisted, if this sort of super twisted long shot narrative that Ukraine did it leaks into lawmakers heads, then he might get that dream. No more sanctions. Yes, absolutely. Like, would it be great if he could get sanctions removed? I mean, the Europeans would love to find a reason to at least partially relieve sanctions. Why? They, their economies suffer far more than ours. They have much more direct trade with, with Russia. Um, interestingly, you know, countries like the Baltic states have, have took a much bigger personal hit to enact sanctions and yet are much firmer on maintaining them because they understand what Russia is. But um, absolutely, if he could get this done, sure, he'd be really happy. But it is also not just about the sanctions. And uh, in many cases, I don't even think he cares what the tangible outcome mm. is. It's the muddling of everything, right? Mm. And mm -hmm. this, like, the permanent conspiracizing of the right and the left, but in particular, this conditioning on the, the American right with conspiracy theories that are helpfully amplified by mm. Fox News, by Breitbart, by whoever the hell else. Um, and uh, now the sort of more extreme pro-Trumpist organizations like One American News Network and others that are sort of replacing Fox as the next generation crazy. Um, <laughs> when you, ha you sort of condition the conspiratorial thinking, it isn't just for the one little bit of information. It's that you create, you cultivate this addiction to conspiracy in the mindset of the people that you're targeting. So they know immediately what the response is to a thing. And it's usually some conspiratorial question where it's, you know, well, you know, didn't you read the whistleblower report? Well, didn't you see the thing where the CIA changed the rules, which is a made up thing that the Federalists promoted, right? Mm -hmm. And 
it's just, but it, in every case, you sort of put out the conspiratorial question, the question that proves there's more there that you don't know, so this can't possibly be real. And on the sort of MAGA hat side of America, mm-hmm. this has now become the normal way of thinking. And mm-hmm. it's a kind of radicalization. The Russians are very successful at exploiting it. We're sort of seeing at what's working its way around the American information environment, knowing which thing to amplify, which button to push. Um, but it's the the muddling of the narrative, the making unclear of everything, um, and the enabling of the very Trumpist clowns in the American Congress, which is not all of them, but there are some that are the most Trumpist, um, to sort of come out with these conspiracies as if they are serious people. And many of them happen to be, you know, in the Intelligence Committee and in the Judiciary Committee. Um, uh, it's It's really... The, the consequences of this will be severe for the Republican Party, for mm-hmm. Republican voters, for conservatives all over the country, um, if they ever decide to have a come to Jesus about what they've done and their own thinking and the fact that, yes, Trump is a megaphone mouthpiece amplifier of terrible things that will rip our nation apart if we do not stop the forces, but it is the people who are willing to believe them and put them forward that at this point really need to look in the mirror. My guest today has been Molly McHugh. She teaches at Georgetown. She's a journalist and she's an information warfare expert. Molly, thank you so much for being here. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. What did you think? Come to Twitter and let's peacefully explore our insights together. I don't think Twitter is a sewer. I think Twitter is alive. It's exciting. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then... Go over to Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Do yourself a favor and become a Slate Plus member. Today's your day. You'll get all of Slate's podcasts uninterrupted, free of ads. You'll get tons of digital swag and special treats, and you'll be supporting our work. Go to Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was, as always, produced by the peerless Melissa Kaplan with engineering help from Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.